desire that flows from our purpose, it's naturally energized. It feels good. It brings out the best in us. It brings us closer to our fellow human beings. The more that we could feed our desire that is in line with our why, with our purpose, the more that life just feels effortless, even if we're working really hard, we'll be more energized at the end than when we started. It feels joyous, feels meaningful. We're doing what we're meant to do. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It is so hidden by the negative noise in our media landscape that I'm calling this wave a conspiracy of goodness. Yes, it is still an amazing world, contrary to what the news media would have us think. And on this podcast, I will introduce you to some of the people making it amazing. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of The Goodness Exchange. That's the mothership website of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. There you're going to find articles and interviews and videos and thousands of links to what's right with the world. Newsworthy things, insight and innovation and real signs of progress going almost completely uncelebrated. The purpose of this podcast and the website is to put a spring in your step again so that we can all live with a lot less fear and a lot more joy every single day. And we're going to get started on that right now with our amazing guest, Jonathan Domsky. Jonathan, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. It is a delight to be here today, Linda. There's nowhere else I'd rather be right now than talking about this stuff with you. I am really, really excited to share your insights. So what we're going to get out of this this interview is a lot of help, helpful, fresh perspectives. I find Jonathan's work and the way the scope of his life has gone to lead him to these insights to be like pearls that all of us can use. I can guarantee you that throughout this conversation, like me, Jonathan will say some things that flip the switch on things that you think were concrete and open up a whole bunch of limiting beliefs that you can really study and decide whether you want to go forward with them or some new beliefs. Let me give you just a little background on Jonathan. He's a former business executive who followed opportunity and the logical path for, for success. Just what obviously anybody would do for 24 years until discovering what he was really built to contribute. Then he had the courage to like step away from this giant corporate world of corporate growth. And he found a gift in helping others with their personal growth. Most specifically, Jonathan helps us untangle the knots, the complexities that are in our personal and working lives. Now he acts like kind of a thought partner for people who find themselves caught in these webs of complexity. And he helps make sense of things that seem impossible and are then very, very possible once we have a few new perspectives. I'll just, I got to share with you where the world that Jonathan comes from. For 24, if, when he was 24 years old, he co-founded Kid Kidorable. Now that may not mean you, but you have seen this brand out in the world. You know, the really cute little umbrellas that look like a frog and the eyes are up on top for kids, kids clothing and the cute boots that are dinosaurs and frogs and turtles and everything under the world. It's this brand of kid accessories that are so adorable. 
and just make parenting, grandparenting, and being a child full of wonder and fun. So that is the business that Jonathan started with his wife and and was able to walk away from it. I mean, they had exposure in People Magazine and the Today Show. They're in 20 countries, or they are in 20 countries. But Jonathan found that his calling was somewhere else. And I can tell you from the pre-call that he and I had one day, which was supposed to be 15 minutes and lasted an hour and 15, that he has some amazing perspectives that will put a spring in your step and help us really get to feeling like we're living a life well-lived. So again, welcome, Jonathan. Delighted to be here. Let's get to it. Okay. All right. Here's the first insight. I'm just, I might just rattle these off and let you pontificate here or there, but this is one that really impressed me. And so I chose it to come first. You say, what's in your life that you've chosen to accept Mm. that you would never have consciously chosen? No. All right. That was well into 45 minutes into our conversation that day when, when you and I were talking, but boy, I've been thinking about that a lot. What's in our lives that we chose to accept, but we never would have consciously chosen. Talk to us about this topic of how we got here, like right now in our own, in the seats we're sitting in. Burn. Well, Linda, there's really only two reasons why people make changes in their lives. Either whatever is bothering them is so bad that they just want it to stop. They just wanted just wanted to stop you know stop hurting so badly. Or they have a positive vision for how they want to uh, how they want to change their lives. Our lives are nothing if not the accumulation of our habits, our routines. And it's so easy to get stuck living a life that is not something that we chose and not something that we enjoy. Maybe it's something that really hurts. But you know, we did it yesterday, and we did it before the day before that, and we did it the day before that too, and we're going to do it today, and we're going to do it tomorrow, because that's what we're used to. And when I ask that question, what have you learned to accept in your life that you would have never consciously chosen? That could be everything from things that most of us never think about, like who are my parents, or what was the you know what was the country that I was born into, to things that we did have an active role in making happen. Who am I married to? What do I do for a living? Uh, you know, did I have that fight you know, with my kid again? And until we're able to say, no, I want to do something about that, we're stuck living these patterns. And what I try to do with my work with clients is to help them just to shine an x-ray on their life and what's working, what's not, to look at their business, what's working, what's not, and what do you choose? And for the things that you wish were different, what are you willing to do about it? And then yeah, tools to get them from A to B. There's this great saying I think about a lot when I want to execute some kind of fundamental change in my own life. Somebody shared it with me many years ago. When the pain of staying the same exceeds the pain of change, then and only then will you change. Well, let's talk about that. Pain is pain can be a very important motivator to make change. The problem with pain as a motivator is it's great for getting us started. It's not 
good for sustainable change. There's, you know, we all start where we are right now. And we have some vision for the future. And that gap, it's as it a creative tension for a negative vision. I just want it to stop hurting so much. That tension is like a rubber band. The more progress we make towards our goal, the less it hurts. And then there's less motivation to keep going. So we go back to where we started. This is an example of this. Let's pretend, let's imagine someone wants to lose weight. If they have a negative vision, a victim's vision for losing weight, they want their clothes to stop being so tight, right? They want something to stop happening. So they'll do the things that you would expect. They'll work out and they'll go on a diet or, you know, or there's some medicine now that makes it easy, whatever it is, they do all those things. And they start to lose weight. And you know what? Their clothes aren't so tight anymore. And now there's no reason to keep exercising and being on a diet. And they get back to where they were in the beginning. Contrast that to someone who has a positive vision for the future. They want to lose weight because they want to look good. And they want to have lots of energy. So they do those same things and they exercise and they, you know, they diet and all those things. And the better they feel, the better they look, the more motivated they are to keep going with a positive vision. That tension is like a magnet. The more progress you make, the stronger the motivation to keep going. All right. That is a that is such a beautiful way for us to think about framing up the change that we want in our life, right? It yeah. really does come down to ha- to our choice of how we frame it. Kenyon is a wonderful motivator. It's completely unnecessary. You are allowed to simply you are allowed to simply say, "I have a vision for the future. This is what I want for my life," and then to take action to bridge that gap between that beautiful future and where you are now. I love that. I love that so much. Okay. So how does this work when we are looking at our lives and thinking about purpose? Yeah, I was not going to get to purpose till way down in this in these questions, but we're so hovering right at the edge of this. I know a lot of us, especially since the pandemic, we had the time to pause. And these routines that we get in that you're saying we choose, we didn't really choose, but we're sustaining them day after day. We had a time to pause. And a lot of us saw a gap in what really makes us feel alive and what we're actually doing with our time. So give us the start on this. I know you've got a story of finding what light what lit you up. I mean, is that what we're after? Like finding what lights us up? So what lights us up is different from purpose. Okay. There is I like to tell people everyone loves themselves. You may not love you become, you may not love a lifetime of debris and you know gunk that has obscured your true self, but your true authentic self, everyone loves themselves. And who you are is a three-legged stool. The most accessible part of who you are is how you believe your life should be lived. Your how is your core values. When you live a life in alignment with your core values, Everything just seems right, feels satisfying. When you live a life out of alignment with your core values, life feels like a slog. You're tired at the end of the day. You might have to unwind with a drink or two or three or sit in front of the TV for a few hours just to decompress. It just doesn't feel right when you live your life differently from how you believe it should be lived. Your why 
your purpose is the second leg of that stool. Why you should be living the life that you live. There's many definitions of why. The one that I like is the intersection of how you feel compelled to show up in the world with the, what you want to contribute, with the impact that you seek to make that just makes everything feel that it's the way that it should be. Now, how do you, how do you get, how do you find out your why? The window to our why is through our stories. Write down just two, three, five sentences. Write down five to a dozen of the most impactful stories in your life. The ones of the biggest emotional amplitude, high and low, our worst moments are our worst moments because they are a deep violation of the way that we feel our life should be lived. It's a window into our why. It's the opposite of that. Our best moments, a day at work that just didn't feel like work, your biggest accomplishments, time, pivotal moments where you felt that your life was forever changed. When you look at those highs and lows, there will be themes. When you write up, and if you ever do this, if you do this exercise on your own, very important, it must be a single frame, single moment in time. We're not looking for generalizations. So I'll give an example. When I first did this exercise, I wrote that one of the most important moments of my life was teaching my son about history. I've read him literally a thousand books. He's 14 now. I've read all these biographies and all this history. And I just, I loved those moments. Now, when I first wrote that story, it was completely useless. <laughs> to find my wife, it's not even a story. It's an idea of how, what I, something I might think about as story. So I dug deeper and I wrote, one day, when my son was six, he asked why we studied history. And I told him, it's because the world that we live in today is not an accident. It was built this way by great, women, by great men and women throughout history who saw things that they didn't like in the world, and they took action to change things. And one day, you will see something in the world that you want to change, and you will take action and change the world. Now, that's a story I could work with. What are the themes? Well, yeah. I'm a coach. I love to coach. Showing him the just the beauty of the world, possibility. These are all themes that come from the stories from that story. And if you make five, ten, a dozen stories of these moments of great amplitude, emotional amplitude that made a big impact in your life, they'll start to see patterns. And from those patterns, you can craft a why statement. My why is to untangle the clutter in our lives so that we have a life that feels effortless, meaningful, and joyous to untangle the clutter just obscuring our best, most authentic selves to have a life that feels effortless, meaningful, and joyous. Now, your why is not the same as your what. Your how and your why, they point a finger in the direction of your what. Your what, which was what you were talking about, what lights you up, your what is what fills your moments, your hours, your days, your weeks. Your life is the what. If you live a life that's in a full alignment with your how and your why, life could be very satisfying, be very meaningful. But in order for it to be truly joyous, you need to do what you were born to do. Your how and your why point a finger in the direction of your what. But what it is, you know, what that you're actually born to do it takes a little bit of trial and error. How do we as adults, let's get to this untangling part of things. 
Is this a good time to talk about the outward mindset? Because I, that's a concept I really love of yours. Now, so much of the trouble that we have in life, so much of the drama is our interactions with other people. The opposite of an outward mindset. And to be clear, I didn't invent this idea. This was popularized by a wonderful organization called the Arbiter Group. And they have a book called The Outward Mindset, which I highly, highly recommend. Okay. I've read over 3,000 books. There is, there's maybe a couple of dozen that have made a dramatic impact in my life. And this was one of them. And when I read it, I just felt like a secret of the universe was being revealed to me. And here's the secret, Linda, in a nutshell. I'll start with the opposite of an outward mindset, which is an inward mindset. With an inward mindset, we are... I'm really concerned with our own needs, our own challenges, our own objectives. And when we think about other people, it's as vehicles to help us get what we want, obstacles that are in our way, and if they can't help us or hurt us, they are irrelevancies that don't matter at all. And if you think about how that shows up in your own life, and all of us have an inward mindset at one time or another, some, uh, some more than others. It's a huge source of the conflict and dysfunction in our lives. Let's pretend, Lena, that you and I are at the top of a hill. And I have a ball, and I push the ball down the hill. What's going to happen to the ball? It's going to roll right away. It's going to roll down the hill. You and I are at the top of the hill, and now I decide to push you down the hill. What's going to happen? I'm going to give you some friction. You're going to push back. Yeah. <laughs> You know, people are not balls. If I were to push on you, you would not say, oh, no, Jonathan, push me, push me down the hill. No, when you push someone, they push back. When you treat someone with an inward mindset, when you treat someone as an obstacle, when you treat someone as a vehicle, they push back. And you know what? They don't care at all about your needs, your objectives, your challenges. In contrast with an outward mindset, we see it other people as people with the same, with not the same needs, challenges, objectives, but the same, that the value of their needs, challenges, and objectives is the same as ours. And if we could take the time to recognize that, to adjust our actions to actually help them achieve their needs, challenges, and objectives, then it opens up the space for collaboration. And we see this in families, we see this with friends, we see this in organizations, businesses. I'll share an example from my days running Cadorable. So Cadorable was built on small, independent mom-and-pop shops. And a really good account was $5,000, a real solid account would have been about $1,000 wholesale each year. So our salespeople had an inward mindset. They had an inward sales goal. Their goal was to sell $1,000 worth of product to our customers each year. And we were focused on our needs, our challenges, our objectives. Once it went out the warehouse door, what happened to it? Well, that, that's the customer's problem. You know, that's not ours. Maybe 15 years ago, we changed our, we changed our sales goal to an outward one. Where now, instead of it being our goal to sell $1,000 of product to our customers, we had it as our goal that our customers would sell $2,000 of our product to their customers. 
Now, standard retail markups of problems is you know, doubling. So if our customers sell 2,000, we've sold 1,000. The numerical goal didn't change. But when our goal became helping our customers sell, that changed everything. Because now, what did we need to do? Well, we needed to support our customers to sell more product. We gave them signage. We gave them sales training and information. We started a program called the Retailer Protection Program, where we would guarantee that our retailers would make money selling Cadorable. And then if they didn't, we would buy the product back. It gave it, it de-risked them. It, it gave them the freedom to try a new product. If they tried five different products and three of them sold, we would buy back the two that didn't sell and we'd sell them two new ones. We wanted our customers to be successful by shifting from an inward concept, grasping mindset, what do we want, and moving towards helping we, we make our customers successful. It opened the space where it was a collaboration, where we were both going towards similar goals and everybody was more successful than they would have been when it was just everybody out for themselves. And I love this concept you've got of us thinking about this grasping, but how did you call it? A grasping? A grasping goal. There is. Talk to us about the grasping goals because ah, I can't go on LinkedIn or, or sometimes social media or just anywhere without just being bombarded by folks that have, this is such a good word, grasping goals. Well, this all ties back to purpose and what it means to have a life that is meaningful and joyous. For anyone who's explored Eastern philosophy, Eastern uh, theology, we've come across this idea of non-attachment, that you know, desire is somehow the enemy. That is a gross simplification. Desire is what makes life worth living. Linda, do you play any sports? Yes. But it's not a sport that you play. Yeah, I was a really, really high-level swimmer all through my teenage years. Or any sports, that, if it's better for the analogy, any sport that is a ball. Let's pretend. Um, okay, yeah, I, my, I'm a big tennis player. Tennis, perfect. So if you're going to play tennis and you don't care, if you have the desire for the ball to go over the net, it's a pretty stupid game. Terror about the ball going over the net. Where non-attachment comes in is that the instant that the ball leaves your racket, that's where you disattach from the result. Use the power of your senses and the feedback that you can gather in your analytical brain to say, oh, you know, if I shift my hand position or I use more power, less power, that's going to affect how the ball goes. To Im- improve, non-attachment isn't now, non-attachment only kicks in after the ball leaves the racket. Until that moment, have a goal to score a point. Have a goal to win the game. Have a goal to play at your best. This is what makes life worth living. But there's two kinds of desire. There is desire that is grasping. I want, I want more money, power, sex, respect, whatever it is. All the things that you know motivate people to, you know, to achieve in this world. Great. Have those goals. Nice. You know, to, to have many of those things. But desire that's grasping, it gives us an inward mindset. It turns the people around us into vehicles and obstacles and irrelevancies. It obscures the way things are. It just focuses us on getting things. 
And you know what? It doesn't make us happy. You contrast desire that flows from our purpose. It's naturally energizing. It feels good. It brings out the best in us. It brings us closer to our fellow human beings. The more that we could feed our desire that is in line with our why, with our purpose, the more that life just feels effortless, even if we're working really hard, we'll be more energized at the end than when we started. It feels joyous, feels meaningful. We're doing what we're meant to do. That is such a lovely sentiment. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and learn about some ways that we can have a lot more positivity in our life. And and then when we come back, we're going to talk more about this purpose, desire, competing commitments. Oh, I love your thoughts on competing commitments. Okay, we'll take a break. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the Mothership website of this podcast is called The Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcasts, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. But what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures. But that's becoming harder and harder when most of us go to virtual work. And many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content, which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access to the positive news out there today because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. And here's the thing. There are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. But most are going completely uncelebrated. Your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful, ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity at setback. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with a tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a Zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational like positivity into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at the Goodness Exchange. 
about change and flourishing where you work. So we're back. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan Domsky. Jonathan was the co-founder of a major brand in the children's clothing industry until one day he walked away from all that and devoted his time to what he felt like he was uniquely built to contribute. Now he gives us perspectives to untangle the complexities in our life that keep us from feeling a real sense of well-being. And he's talking to us about this, that, or the other thing. We're really just giving, getting a smattering of his work. And at the end of the show, he'll tell, tell us how we can connect further. But Jonathan, thank you so much for helping us drill down past some of these, these um, I would say, these surface assumptions that we're making about what's possible for ourselves. Is that a decent, decent yeah. way to describe? Take the blinders off and wake yeah. up and live the life that you were born to. <laughs> Great. Okay, so we were just dancing all around this topic of purpose. And back to what I think came out of the pandemic, the great resignation, everybody quitting their jobs and thinking the grass is greener somewhere else. Now we know that a few years have ticked by and about 56% of people sort of realize that they wish they were back where they started. And I think that's because we were looking for purpose in the wrong places, right? So just take us off on, on that whole topic. Yeah. So the place where I start with well, let's, let's back up. There's five reasons why people who work hard don't have the lives that they envision for themselves. And the first reason is that they don't know who they are. And that's the place to start. Find your how. Articulate your core values. Find your why, your purpose. And a little bit harder. It takes a little bit longer for most people. But find your what. What is it that you were born to do? Once you know who you are, the next question is, do you have a compelling vision for where you want to go in life? We talked a little bit about that earlier, the difference between a victim's negative vision and a positive, proactive vision for the future. And there's a whole art to, uh, there's a whole art to uh, crafting a vision that pulls you forward. And once you know who you are, and once you know where you're going, the next question is, well, do you know how to get there? What are the nuts and bolts skills that you need to, to, to advance to get where you want in life? But when most people look for help, that's what they think they need. It's almost never, <laughs> it's almost never what they really need. I mean, maybe a little bit of skills building here and there, but the answer is almost always somewhere else. If it was as simple as, you know, oh, I just need to learn Excel and then I'll live the my dreams, you would have figured that out a long time ago. Once you know who you are, once you know where you're going, once you know how to get there, you're still not living the life that you want. Well, the next question is, what are the obstacles? What is in front of you? Where is your road blocked? And sometimes it's blocked by other people. And we use tools like the outward mindset. Sometimes it's blocked because there's some kind of constraint. You're limited in resources or other things. And for each of these, there's, you know, there's a set of tools to go over, around, or through those obstacles. And then lastly, if you already know who you are, if you know where you're going, if you know how to get there, if you removed all the obstacles in front of you, and still, you're not making the progress that you want. Well, then the problem is in here, usually in the form of a self-limiting belief or a competing commitment that is preventing you from moving forward. It's one step forward. It's one step back. You're sabotaging yourself. And a big red flag to know that, oh, I bet I have a competing commitment, is if 
if you've had a problem for years that resists solution, you've tried everything, nothing works, and all of your friends say, Linda, why don't you just do the thing? And you're like, oh, no, no, Jonathan, you don't understand. It's so much more complicated than that. That is a bright flashing light that you have a competing commitment that you are preventing, your, that you're sabotaging yourself. It's like you have one foot on the gas. And one foot on the Give gas. us an example of that, a story. Do you want an example from my life or from a client? Of whatever you think is the easiest way for us to understand competing commitments, because you have told me a few stories in our previous conversation, and I was like, oh, this is serious. Well, I'll start with a client story, and then if you want another one, I'll give you one for me. So a few years ago, I was working with a 50-year-old entrepreneur. She was on her third business. She had had a certain level of success. She had 15 or 16 employees, and she came to me for a traditional business coaching. She wanted to learn how to grow her business. Now, this woman's business was a prison. She was working 15-hour days. There was nothing that could take place in her company that she was not directly involved in. She, the way that she described it, she liked to hire birds with broken wings. People who, you know, they couldn't really do the job, but she believed in them. She knew that they could, you know, that she could turn them into something really great. And we started with the standard prescription daily huddles to get everyone on the same page and communicating, quarterly strategic planning meetings so everyone knows what the most important things are. She already had great core values and stuff like that. And she made some progress, but it was always one step forward, one step back. And after a couple of months of this, I said, I like all this stuff that we're doing, you're, I mean, no one works harder than you, but you're not making the progress that someone who's working so hard should be making. Let's take another look. So I asked her what she's committed to. And she said that she is committed to scaling her business. Like, great. Let's make a list of all the things you do that are cross purposes with that. What are all the things that you do that sabotage you growing your business? And we made that long list, hiring those birds with broken wings. She didn't quite pay a market wage, so she couldn't attract uh, tough like, talent. If someone came to her with some work, a designer was working on a design and it wasn't what she wanted to, instead of giving feedback, she would just finish it herself. She would do all these things that put everything on her shoulders so that nothing could happen in her business without her direct involvement, making it impossible to scale. She's already working 15 hours a day. How much, yeah, you know, where, where, where's the room to grow? And then we asked someone who does all those things, what else might they be committed to that makes all those behaviors seem perfectly reasonable? Now, she was a very self-aware person and usually it takes a little bit of time, but almost immediately she said, I am committed not depending on anyone. Okay. Yeah. If you're committed to not depending on anyone, then it makes sense that you don't hire anyone who could actually depend on. Next question. Someone who's committed to not depending on anyone. What is an assumption that they have about the world? What's a belief about how things work that fuels that commitment? Now she realized that she was committed so not depending on anyone, because if she did, it would let her down, betray her, and she'd feel awful about herself. Now, when she was eight, that was a perfectly accurate worldview. But as a successful 50-year-old entrepreneur, it was absurd. Now, our conscious minds are like an ant riding the elephant 
of our subconscious. There is no way that the ant could say just, you know, they could say to the elephant, just stop it. Like, you know, change direction. It's impossible. The most that the ant could do is say, hey, look over there and hope that the elephant turns its head and notices something. So the way that we do this is simple tests, little reality checks to see if this belief is actually true. Maybe it is true. Maybe if she depended on people, they would betray her. She'd feel terrible about herself. And because that's a possibility, we're going to start with something really small, a super safe low-risk test. She decided that she was going to ask her assistant to order lunch without asking her, <laughs> you know, what she wanted. And she decided that she was going to ask her husband to take out the garbage. Simple ways to depend on other people that if it blew up in her face, the stakes were low. It didn't really matter. And it turned out all right. And then she did some bigger risks and some bigger ones. And things really seemed to shift in our company. She made a lot of progress. And it was about a month later, we had a 3 p.m. coaching call. She comes in and she's just at her wits end. She's angry at her staff. She's like, oh, these people, they can't do anything right. She, it's 3 p.m. She had a chance to pee it. She hadn't had a chance to, to have breakfast. I'm just getting this angry. Dealing with fires all day. I, I calmed her down. I told her to take a 10-minute break. <laughs> you know, go to the bathroom, eat something, come back. And then I asked her, are you committed to growing your company without your micro-involvement? Or are you committed to not depending on anyone. And defiantly, she said, I'm committed to growing my company. I said, great, what you need to do? Fire the C players. They're paying a market wage. Give people feedback so they actually know how to please you instead of just doing everything yourself and with a list of eight things. Two weeks later, she'd implemented every single one of those ideas. She'd never had a more satisfying experience as an entrepreneur. And a month later, she took a three-month sabbatical. She walked away from her business. This woman who was used to spending 15 hours each day so that her business didn't fall apart, walked away for three months. And it was all there and had grown when she came back. And then it was only possible once she was, got rid of this competing commitment. Because once the belief evaporated in the sunlight, there was nothing left to fuel the competing commitment. And so all those self-sabotaging behaviors, I just effortlessly fell away because there was no reason to do them. Now, this competing commitment thing, that it, that could take some time for us to sort out. But it is a, would it be simple enough to say, you know, you recognize something that is that you just think you desperately want in your life. Yeah. And then you... Step one is to just realize that there's a reason why it's not happening. You're throwing yourself at a door that's not open. If you work, if you work hard at something, and you've made no progress, maybe for a decade or more, it's not the problem. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem is not in front of you. The problem is between your ears. You're almost certainly sabotaging yourself. Now, sometimes the problem is in front of you. And it's a, well, so here's another one of my favorite tools. So it's called a, we can't if. So let me ask you a question. Linda. How long does it take you to use the first 80% of a tube of toothpaste? Brand new tube of toothpaste. But how long does it take you to use the first 80%? I don't know, three months. Three months. How long does it take you to use the last 5%? Oh, I could set that out another three months if I can. I'm a dentist. So... Yeah. <laughs> So maybe I'm not the best person to ask this to, 
No, oh, yeah, I've been right. You, you yeah, eat a little bit less toothpaste, but it's still enough. You, yeah, is the two. I've been known to cut the tube in half to squeeze out a few more brushes. Yeah, we only become resourceful when there aren't enough resources. We feel frustrated. We feel constrained when the way that we're used to doing things is blocked. Now, there's three ways that we respond to a constraint. The first is that we limit our ambitions. We, uh, we can't do, let's, let's pretend, let's use a business example. You have a sales goal, you lose your biggest customer. Well, I guess we're just going to lower our sales goal. That's the way that most people respond to a constraint. Another way is to just work harder, find some other way to reach the original goal within the constraint. We lost our biggest customer, but uh, yeah, maybe we can get more business from other customers. Maybe we'll work harder on you know, finding new customers. Okay, great. The most interesting way is to transcend the constraint, to act in a way that you never would have thought of before the constraint existed, but in a way that helps you achieve something greater than you ever would have imagined. A great example of this, I believe it was in 2004, Audi, the car company, wanted to win the Le Mans 24-hour this grueling car race across France. But they knew that they couldn't out-engineer Ferrari. So they had, a, they had a problem. How could you win a race when you can't have a car that's faster than the competition? And in Audi's case, they realized that they had a, this huge advantage in their fuel-efficient diesel technology. And they doubled down on that. They weren't any faster than the competition, but they had fewer pit stops. And they won the Le Mans Paris the next three years running. If I'm going to apply this tomorrow in my life, yeah. the thing would be, if I got this right, the thing would be to make a list of all this. Okay, so I'm looking at something that seems like a tremendous boulder I just can't move. Yeah. And then at first I ask myself all the reasons why I feel like I can't move it. Yeah. And then is it is it worth the time to sort of ruminate on the opposite, just like in the example you yeah. just used with me through this company? Exactly. Okay, good. Make an exhaustive list of all the constraints, all the reasons why we can't because. Take each one one at a time, little bit. What would have to be true for this not to matter? What we could if. And then choose the one or two or three that seem most promising and commit to taking action. If your audience likes this tool, I have a worksheet on it. Okay. You can go to my website untangled-coaching.com. Don't forget the dash, untangled-coaching.com slash we-can-if. And you can download the worksheet that walks through this process. And I'm going to just tell people right now, you don't have to go grab a pen. We're going to put all the links to anything Jonathan wants to link us to and the things that we've mentioned in this podcast in the show notes at the Goodness Exchange. You won't find that necessarily on the on Spotify or app or where you get your podcast. But if you go and listen to this interview right on the Goodness Exchange website, you'll see so much more information. So thanks for mentioning that. Okay, there's a couple. There's about four or five things that I we can just we just need to explore because they they made big enough points with me that day that we were talking that I want oh. you to share these concepts. Okay, so and they might kind of seem disconnected, but. I think they're all connected in the end because they go back to what you just said. We can flip the way we're looking at things and find a whole bunch of new answers. And there's two tools here that both work with the same flaw in human perception. And I'll start with the quick one. If we have time. We could go to my favorite tool, redraw your map of the world. But the first 
The first is simply to focus on what's good. The spotlight of our attention is what we notice, and that tends to grow. And everything that is in darkness, everything that we're not focusing on, it tends to shrink. So if we simply focus on the things that make us happy, on the things that are useful to helping us navigate the world, we'll be happier and those things will grow. I'll give a, a very simple example for Chris to build the model. We focus on the, we tend to focus on the one or two things that we don't like. And we ignore the 10, 50, 100 things that are working really well. So the next time that you find yourself not liking something that's going on in your life, something that's come to your attention, ranks from a list of all the things about this that are actually pretty good. Reflect on them, be grateful for them. And then ask, of those things that you brainstormed, what are one or two or three that you'd like to get even more attention to that you'd like to see grow? Try it for a month and see what happens. I'll share a story. When I was a young man, I had a very contentious relationship with my parents. We would still see each other about once a week. That was our habit. But almost immediately, as soon as I got into their home, they would say something that would uh, I felt was judgmental or they would, you know, it would, it would get me going. It would, it, would, it would be defensive. I'd be angry. I'd be stewing the whole way home. I felt that what was special about me, what was unique about me, they were completely blind to. The things that just, you know, we didn't have anything in common. It was it's hard to it was hard to talk. And one day when I was twenty four, I decided I wanted to improve the relationship. And I didn't have these tools, but I, I didn't wasn't able to articulate what I was doing. But I was I decided to focus on the good. They loved me. They wanted me to be conventionally successful. That was something I could build on. So. And I would, but I'd never been able to do this without the support of, of, of my wife. But every time I'd see them for about a year, when they would make a comment that I would see as judgmental, instead of defending myself, instead of arguing, I would say thank you. <laughs> and then we'd change the subject, and we would focus on that five percent of a relationship that was good. But they loved me. They wanted us to, you know, wanted us to be uh, commercially successful. I would ignore all the things that used to bother me. Sometimes the words would get caught in my throat, but I just wouldn't express them. I would stop focusing on the 95% of the relationship that I found troubling, and I'd focus on the 5% that was good. And then over the course of that year, that 5% grew to about 40% of the relationship. And that 95% shrunk to about 5% of the relationship. What we focus our attention on tends to grow. We, what we ignore tends to shrink. Now, if you add up those numbers, it's only 45% of a relationship. It's a little bit stunted. It's not quite as full as I wish it was, but you know what? That was 26 years ago. And my relationship with my parents brings us all great joy. And it's easy, Linda. And there's so much that's good. And it came from simply focusing on the parts of the relationship that were good at letting them blossom and letting the parts that, didn't, that I didn't like as much wither. Now, they're still there. They're a shadow of what they used to be, and they just don't bother me. And that's an example of 
focusing on the good. I, I just can't, because <laughs> that's what I do with the goodness exchange. I can't help but draw the parallel in the yeah. message that we're trying to put forward at the goodness exchange is that what you give your attention to expands and that the oh. it is the same way when we look at our phones in our hands. If we are focusing, if we allow ourselves to be clicking and scrolling and stopping on the negative stuff, yeah. then that's what we see more of. You're allowed not to read it. You're allowed not to click on it. Yes. So just don't. Just pause and ignore about 80%. That's the TED Talk, the TEDx Talk that I've done. That's the exact advice I give people. Pause before you click on anything. Ignore 80% of what you would have given your attention to. And seek signs of goodness and progress. I mean, I'm just realizing now how much you and I are on the exact same page on this. My, there's four shifts. The first one is pause. The second one is ignore more. The third one is seek signs of goodness and progress. And the fourth no. one is share it. Is there some component that you also added to this relationship with your parents so that you focused on sharing the things that you knew were going to be winners? Yeah, absolutely. I knew that we could always have a good conversation about my career. I knew we could always have a good conversation, but they wanted me to be happy. The things that they wanted yeah. for me weren't necessarily the things that would make me happy, but they they genuinely wanted me to be happy. Yeah. We focused on that. Yeah. And we just and stopped talking about stuff that was contentious. You know, you talk about you talk about politics earlier. You don't want to fight with your family about politics. Don't talk about politics. I mean, there's so much more to talk about. Yeah. Like, why do you need to focus on that? It's not, it's, it's not like anything's going to change. I we read a, read a book about a year ago that asked the question. When's the last time you actually read something in the news that caused you to take action? And at the time, I used to spend about two hours a day reading news. I just I liked it. It was a hobby. I, I liked to be well informed. And I read it, and I'm like, I think there's anything. I mean, surely I would have heard about coronavirus by now. I would, <laughs> yeah, I'm allowed to I'm allowed to research something if it comes across my attention. I want to learn more. And I just cut down my news reading from a couple hours a day to a couple hours a week. And I don't miss anything. I'm no less well-informed. I mean, it's all noise, no signal. Just stop reading about it. Stop talking about it. Turn off the TV. And have something else that's more joyful, more meaningful. You'll miss nothing. Nothing. You know, I love that you said something in that line, and that to me, along that line, those lines in our first chat, you also said, you know, when have you ever taken action on anything in the news? Yeah. But the opposite is, you know, think about how we are still reading books that are 2,000 years old because they are full of timeless wisdom. Like, no. <laughs> I had, so I've read over 3,000 books. It's very rare that I read anything that's less than 10 years old. And I pretty much prefer it. If it's 50 or 100 or 1,000 years old, because it must be good. People are still reading it. And what's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be worthwhile. That's lovely. Okay. So I, I want you to comment on a few more things. So there's this sentence that we all say to each other when bad things happen to good people. Or uh, let's say after we put some distance between us and a really bad thing that happened or something we labeled as bad, yeah. this everything happens for a reason. How does that statement strike you? So it's a problematic statement to say that everything happens for a reason. It seems 
well, let's say at the very least, it's beyond our understanding. To say that you know, some a baby who is born with some horrible, painful disease that this happens for a reason. The way that I prefer to look at things is that life is a curriculum, perfectly designed to work out our purpose. This moment, this one, is inevitable. There is nothing we could be doing to change this moment. We could take action to change the next one. But this moment, it's here. And there's nothing we could do about it. And if that's true, as it is, then well, what do we do with that fact that this moment is inevitable? Well, I ask, who is it that I need to be? What is it I need to learn? What's the action that I need to take in order to fulfill my vision, in order to live a life that feels effortless, meaningful, and joyous, because that is the measure of our success in life. The extent to which it's, you know, we are we can navigate life's ups and downs. Are you on a path that feels more meaningful now than it did a year ago? Or are you happier now than you were a year ago? I mean, are you happier now than when you were five years old? For most people, the answer sadly is no. We think that after however many decades of learning what makes us happy, we'd be pretty good at it by now. But you know, for most people, it doesn't work out that way. But people have been having this conversation for 5,000 years. What does it take to live a meaningful and joyful life? And my favorite tool that exploits that same limit in human perception that we were talking about earlier is redraw your mental maps. So the way that it works is we start with a thought that causes us stress or suffering because these thoughts only harm us when we believe them. You and I talked about minding the gap, like the gap between the stories we're telling ourselves mm. and what's actually real or possible or even probable. I mean, usually huh. we tell ourselves stories to, you know, because it's the craziest thing we can think of. Again, we're all stuck in this sort of weird, elevated mindset of chaos. Talk to us about the stories we're telling ourselves as we wrap up. So there's a lot there. The first thing I'd say is that to a large extent, our stories don't matter. When you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, how do you, you know, how do you change reality? You start by where you are right now and you look at where you want to go and you just notice what's missing. And then you take steps to bridge that gap. Nowhere in that is, how did I get to where I am right now? That story may be interesting. It may be insightful. It's largely irrelevant. Going back to the competing commitment story that I told you about that entrepreneur whose business had become a prison, who had a competing commitment and a hidden belief that she wasn't willing to depend on anyone because if she did, they would betray her, make her feel terrible, and let her down. Now, it's true that that belief was formed when she was a young girl and she had an emotionally abusive father and all the rest. And that's tragic. And I mean, heal that. See a, with all seriousness, I mean, see a therapist, heal those painful memories. But just to say, like, oh, the reason why I am, you know, who I am today, the story, you know, the reason it's all my dad's fault. Who cares? It's like your old woman. Like, here's what your dad did, you know, 40 years ago. It's completely irrelevant. All that matters is where are you right now? 
where do you want to go? The story of how you got here doesn't matter. This moment, this one is inevitable. All we need to do is look at the gap. What's missing? Who do you need to be? What is the action you need to take? What is it that you need to learn? That story may be interesting. It does not define you. I guess that's all I'll say about this. We could talk for hours. Really? Is. The, I know. I know. Okay. So we've got to wrap up, but and I, I can't thank you enough for coming and just getting our minds open in all these new directions. Where can people connect with you? Where Where's the best way? Well, again, we're going to put it in the show notes, but if people are in a position to grab a pen, how can they connect with you and continue on with your insights? Well, the easiest way is to go to my website, untangled-coaching.com. Don't forget the dash. You could also look at my YouTube channel. You see if she does videos on there, including talking about things like we can, if the exercise guided meditations on how to be present. I have a series of mini courses that you could find on my website under programs with things, you know, I talked about the importance of finding out who you are. You could take a mini course on how to articulate and live your core values, how to find your personal why. We'd be adding a new course every month or so between now and the summer. Yeah, I wanted to dive way deeper into that at the beginning of the show when we were talking about there, because I did feel like we absolutely did the mountaintops today. But I know now, after being in conversation with Jonathan for, well, now we've spent maybe three and a half hours together. If you count the last time we talked, Jonathan has some really insightful ideas that will open up windows and doors for you and lead to landscapes of a life I lived that I know, I know he is, he's one of those guys that can take us on a little journey we couldn't have gone on without it. We've just scratched the surface, Linda. So we feel like we could talk all day and I'd like to continue the conversation sometimes. Okay, we will. Thank you so much. Remember to join us at the Goodness Exchange, where people with good intention and good ideas from all over the globe are gathering. We're coming together there on the Goodness Exchange to find each other and become multipliers for the best that's in our world and our better in impulses. I hope that all the connections that Jonathan and I shared for the goodness and progress will carry you through your week and you will start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Thanks.